A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Al-Ain Ar-Rajeem Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajah Brothers, sisters, respected viewers Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and thank you and welcome for joining us again uh, as we wrap up this section in our uh, theme, Knowledge and Intellect, this section that was dedicated to sincerity. Uh, today we shall, inshallah, be uh, concluding the time that we are spending on the topic of sincerity in Islam uh, and preparing ourselves so that next time uh, when we meet, we can, inshallah, begin the new section related to this one, to this theme, uh, namely action. So the idea for uh, today's lecture is simply to go over, we spent uh, maybe 14 or 15 lectures on the topic of sincerity. So uh, the idea is simply to provide the important highlights uh, and principles that we uh, can extract from everything that we uh, went through over these lectures. Uh, it will not be as detailed as I usually make these uh, conclusions because there would be too much to cover if we wanted to break it down into every individual principle. And so this is simply uh, a matter of highlighting the most important points. Uh, and inshallah, if we have a little bit of time, I don't want this to be too long, if we have a little bit of time at the end, uh, also reminding or highlighting a couple of um, I don't want to call them objections, but certainly questions that could arise or that have actually uh, been raised uh, related to this entire topic and many of the points that we've been talking about. So as you remember, we began uh, our discussion from the beginning. Uh, we began by understanding the importance of knowledge. We spent a bit, a bit of time on that. The second theme was the importance of intellect. And inshallah, that part is clear too. Then we spent time establishing the justification for the incredible merit and value and importance that our religion has given to knowledge and intellect uh, through the verses of the Holy Quran. Once we did that, we also looked at what the alternative is. Everything that we looked at up to that point clearly indicated that we have to gain as much knowledge and we have to use as much intellect as we possibly can. But we wanted to see, so what's the alternative? If we don't do that, just how bad is it? What is the alternative? And we concluded that the only alternative that Islam provides to knowledge and intellect, both of them, the alternative, or by opposition, the only thing left is jahl, is ignorance and foolishness. And we spent a few lectures on jahl to see what Islam says about it. And so the conclusion from jahl was that this is not an option. Jahl cannot be an option, therefore we have to go back to knowledge and intellect and continue to see, okay, so what next? So the what next is broken down into a few sections. One of the sections is obviously going to be concerned with the types of knowledge that we have to acquire. 
and inshallah this is coming uh, and then how to build on that to other things but before we get there we saw that already in the hadith and in the verses of the Quran that we looked at there were indications that there are conditions that have to be met for knowledge and aql to be considered Islamic to be considered divine to meet the criteria that we've been talking about from the beginning and the majority of us if we don't know this when we come to a topic like knowledge in Islam we may think that it is really limited to restricted to the types of knowledge that we generally consider to be religious knowledge you know aqaid uh, for instance beliefs uh, understanding the holy quran uh, understanding let's say the biographies and the history of uh, the holy prophet and al-bayt and so on and so forth these are the traditional types of knowledge that we talk about and yes absolutely those are religious types of knowledge but what about the rest and as we started to go through the narrations related to the knowledge and intellect we saw that in islam the criteria the criteria is not whether we are going to label something to be religious knowledge or not the criteria is something else the criteria is the intention behind acquiring the knowledge and then what do you do with it what does it lead to so there's an intent to acquire the knowledge and then what does it do in terms of transforming you? How does it affect you? How does it change what you do and who you are? So it's that we call action. And so before continuing in the series to see what are the types of knowledge that Islam says to go and acquire, we already have a preliminary answer to this, which is any and all knowledge may be considered Islamic if the conditions are met. And the conditions are two. And this is what led us to start exploring those two conditions. The first condition being sincerity. What intent do you have when you acquire the knowledge? Why are you trying to acquire this knowledge? That's one. Depending on your intent, that knowledge may become Islamic, may become divine, may become religious. And secondly, how are you going to use it? How is it going to affect you? Does it change the way you think? Does it, does it change the way you view the world? Does it make you do things that you were not doing before that are good? All of those things will probably lead to that knowledge becoming Islamic. It could be biology. It could be you understanding how weather works. It could be you understanding, uh, you know, for instance, building a building, edifices, mechanical engineering, civil engineering. But you understand how this can be used for humanity and you 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 come to the topic with an intent and then it transforms you and it transforms the world through you then this becomes islamic knowledge there's an intent that makes that knowledge sacred or religious or divine or islamic okay so this was our transition into the first of the two conditions which was sincerity and intent Okay, so we came into the topic with one main aim, which is now we want to understand the relationship between knowledge and intent, or intention behind acquiring the knowledge. But once we got into the topic, there was a lot of interest to understand sincerity and to understand good intentions in Islam 
in general to go in depth in the knowledge so we split the topic into two parts the first part was sincerity and intentions as they relate to knowledge specifically which was the real intention behind adding or integrating this component into our series and secondly talking about good intentions and sincerity in general in Islam okay so I'll go over the points, but this is just so that you keep the structure in mind. And then we can, inshallah, as we highlight what we've covered until now, things uh, make sense. And for those who have been here from the beginning, you'll remember what we covered since then. So in the first part, we talked about the relationship between knowledge and intent. Okay. The second part was intent in general. Okay. So when it comes to the acquisition of knowledge, with the right intent or the wrong intent. What did we cover? The first point had to do with the distinction that we've been talking about between divine knowledge and worldly knowledge. We said that there are things that we acquire that we quickly label as being, for instance, Islamic knowledge, religious knowledge, and others that are worldly knowledge. The point that we concluded from the verses of the Qur'an and the narrations that we looked at was that knowledge does fall into two categories, but those two categories are not always going to match what we, how we label them. Okay, There is something that is divine knowledge. There is knowledge that is supposed to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that makes you understand your relationship with God, that helps you understand what God expects of you. All of that is divine, religious, Islamic knowledge. But it does not meet the criteria until the conditions are met, right? But that in general is a first point to understand. There is divine knowledge. For this type of knowledge, the divine knowledge, we do not have a choice but to approach it with sincerity. If it is a type of knowledge that helps you understand who you are as a human being, who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, who your creator is, what's your relationship with your God, what does your God expect of you in this world, any type of knowledge that falls under these headings must be approached with good intentions. And we're going to go through the examples of good intentions and bad intentions. We're going to see what it is not, what we cannot do, so that we, by opposition or elimination, do the opposite. Okay, and we spend time on that. So, the idea here is any knowledge that gets you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or we saw uh, narrations that talk about the types of knowledge that end up bringing you to heaven or hell, the types of knowledge that mean spiritual purification, cleanliness on the inside, you develop yourself spiritually, um, and that lead to religious action. Those types of knowledge, directly or indirectly, are all supposed to be divine knowledge. Okay? Those types of knowledge must be approached with sincerity, with good intentions. When you want to acquire those types of knowledge, it has to be with sincere intentions. Worldly knowledge, when you learn something like the example we just gave, civil engineering, biology, astronomy, 
those in themselves, they wouldn't be divine knowledge. They are not good and they are not bad in themselves. So we can consider them neutral. Is it valid? Is it acceptable to learn them? Of course it is. Do you have to approach learning biology or learning engineering with good intentions? No, you don't. So I can learn it to make money. I can learn it to gain a reputation in the world as the best engineer in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But you do miss out on something. You miss out on the opportunity of using this type of knowledge for a divine purpose. So that same knowledge, if you approach it without the sincerity and the good intentions, it becomes something worldly and it is valid and it's acceptable for you to approach it so long as you are not approaching it with evil intent. I don't want to learn this to go do harm. I don't want to learn this so that I disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So long as this is not what you're doing, then it's valid to learn it with whatever other intention, worldly or not. Okay, so this is the distinction that we made. This is where it's useful to keep that distinction in mind. Because once this is done, then we're going to look at very closely what it means to have good intent and what we are supposed to avoid when we acquire knowledge. So, Absolutely, when you're acquiring knowledge and that knowledge is divine, it's the type of knowledge that is supposed to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that makes you understand who you are as a creature of God and what's your relationship with God and what He expects of you and what's waiting you in the af- for you in the afterlife and so on and so forth. This type of knowledge must be acquired with the right intent. You have no choice here. So the ahadith, the narrations that we looked at, This is what they meant when they kept emphasizing that you must approach knowledge and carry knowledge and use knowledge with the right intent. By necessity, it applies to this type of knowledge. As for the worldly knowledge, now it falls into two categories. If you want the worldly knowledge to become sacred, to become religious, to become divine, You want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward you for studying engineering or biology or math or astronomy or whatever you're studying. You want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to consider this an act of worship. Then in that case, you need to meet the same criteria. And if you meet the same criteria, that you approach it and you use it with the right intent and with sincerity, it becomes Islamic knowledge. It becomes divine knowledge, sacred Okay, so that's the first distinction. So, once this is out of the way, we talked about when we learn knowledge, the intent of learning the knowledge, if it is good, if you have sincerity as you learn knowledge, we saw that there is a lot of merit, a lot of value given to the person who learns knowledge in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though we may not see it in the world ourselves. We saw the narrations that talk about this person who acquires knowledge for the right reasons. Now any knowledge, if it meets the criteria, if it is acquired with the right reasons, this person is going to be considered or called great in the kingdom of the heavens. If you remember the hadith 
from the Imams and from Isa alayhi salam. They reported from Prophet Jesus alayhi salam where he talks about this. Okay? So, gets you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It helps you become a better human being, become useful to others, to uh, act on. So those were all valid reasons. If you learn knowledge so that you act on it in a way that can be considered satisfactory to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you acquire knowledge so, so that it helps you become more useful to yourself and to others in a way that makes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala satisfied with you. All of that falls under this heading of doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so here we had talked about why not, why waste the opportunity of making everything that you do for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Simply with this awareness, with this consciousness, with a different outlook on life, that everything I do, I can simply make this little switch, make this little shift in my thinking, in my attitude, in how I approach things, and suddenly something that is supposed to be trivial and everyday act, simply for my livelihood, for instance, it becomes an act of worship. It becomes something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers sacred, an act of obe- obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No different than when you pray or you fast or you give charity. And then we saw what not to do. When it comes to your intentions to approach knowledge, to acquire knowledge, to use knowledge, we spent a bit of time on what not to do. And we saw that the expressions used in our religion were quite severe. Okay, we're not going to go through all of them. But some of the things that we saw were repeated again and again in the narrations that we looked at. For instance, we were told never learn religion or never acquire knowledge any type of knowledge that we wish to be divine and sacred, if it is simply to, for instance, dispute with fools and those who are stubborn, simply arguing and disputing. Never to learn knowledge with the intention of disputing with scholars and competing with scholars. Never learn religion to use to get closer to those who are powerful or those who are wealthy and using knowledge basically as a way to get into that world and get a seat at their table and becoming one of them, right? Or being used by them, becoming an instrument in their hands, okay? And here there was also a warning. We saw uh, uh, at least one narration, perhaps more, in which the Holy Prophet, for instance, was saying, unfortunately, There are people who will acquire knowledge and they think that that knowledge is going to protect them once they use that knowledge to get closer to those who are wealthy and powerful. And it will not. The Holy Prophet basically said, someone who thinks that way thinks too highly of themselves. They think that just because they have acquired the knowledge, now they can be in any situation and they will be immune to want to be part of that world or to be used by those who are in that world. So the Holy Prophet is saying this should never become part of the intent, right? No one is good enough. This is not going to provide immunity to anyone. Don't go in with that type of arrogance, okay? To talk about it, to show to people that you do know, that you have knowledge. We're told never to learn knowledge simply so that you can talk and you can say, I have knowledge and you can... Uh, spread that knowledge, but it does nothing to your heart, 
right? Um, so for reputation. And here there were so many warnings that we saw uh, spread out in the hadith. We were told, for instance, those who learned simply for gaining a reputation in this world of being knowledgeable, being scholars, they will be the first to be dragged on their faces to hell. If you remember the, the hadith, right? Uh, other hadith talked about uh, people who will learn simply to get a reputation of being a scholar, being uh, of, of reputable knowledge, recognized for their knowledge only. That's their intent. They will never smell the fragrance of paradise. That's how far they are from the Jannah, from paradise, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove. So this is all in the afterlife. And in this world, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove the blessing from their life. He will remove the sweetness that they taste when they worship him. Inshallah, we're going to come to this uh, later too. We'll spend some time on this. Uh, they will be lost and confused in some of the narrations. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically removes his guidance. This basira starts to go dark and they're unable to basically make out their way in this world when it comes to things that are tribulations and trials and tests and things come become confusing, they start falling into the, the pitfalls, okay? So basically their knowledge starts to become useless in the spiritual sense. We saw that there are narrations saying never learn knowledge or acquire knowledge to turn people's attention towards yourself or to learn knowledge to turn people towards you or to call to yourself. And perhaps we said, turn people's faces towards you, as we saw in some narrations, could basically mean simply to get attention. Calling people towards you is perhaps a much more severe and higher level. Calling people towards you, you're becoming a, a guru, a leader of a sect, uh, you know, someone that people follow. You create your own madhab, for instance, right? So this is calling people towards you. And a little bit different than turning people's faces towards you. Other narrations talked about never learning knowledge uh, out of ignorance. And those who do, they will die uh, ignorant. So you learn out of arrogance. You die ignorant. Or uh, learning knowledge with, without ever having an intent to act on that knowledge. The Holy Prophet says those people die Hypocrites, munafiqeen. There are people who learn knowledge simply to dispute, and those people die indecent or immoral, lacking morals. There are people who learn knowledge only for this world, wealth, reputation, so on and so forth. They will get nothing in the afterlife, the Holy Prophet says, and there are people specifically who learn it for wealth, and they use it for wealth, for material gains, material benefits, and those people die in disbelief. Their belief slowly evaporates and dissipates from their heart, and they leave this world, zindiq, as the hadith says, someone who no longer carries the faith. Okay, so knowledge, knowledge on the opposite, knowledge must be learned, okay, in any case. And we saw, because when we look at these hadith, it starts to get scary, and one would say, maybe it's better for me not to engage. And we even saw such a hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He says, if th these are the reasons why someone is learning the knowledge, then perhaps for that person, what's awaiting for them in the afterlife is so humiliating and so severe in terms of punishment 
that it's better for them not to learn in the first place. But we said this is a hyperbolic or exaggerated way from the Holy Prophet of saying this because the uh, result or the outcome from this is not, therefore, this is too difficult and I don't learn. The result is that I better make sure that when I learn, I'm learning for with the right intentions, for the right purposes. And we saw that even in the ahadith. So this is not just us concluding this. We saw the hadith from Imam Sadiq alayhi salam. He was saying there are three reasons that are not good enough to not learn knowledge. One of them is that there are people who are going to be contented with ignorance. Right? You're happy with your level. And we saw this applies to everyone. We are all ignorant. Our ignorance is relative. Some uh, have more ignorance than others, but we're all ignorant. The amount of knowledge to acquire never ends. It's infinite. So someone who says, what I know is enough, I don't need to learn more, especially when it comes to things related to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or religion or how to be better, how to clean myself from the inside. All of those things should be kind of a top priority, consistently present in our lives. We should never be contented with our level. So someone who says, you know, my level is sufficient. This is, in a way, the imam is saying, someone who is happy with their level of ignorance. That's one. And two, there are people who have zuhd in ilm, as the imam says. They belittle the value of knowledge. They don't appreciate knowledge. They don't appreciate the value, the merit, the importance of knowledge. This is not important enough for them to spend time on, to spend money on, to spend energy on. Okay, the imam says, never make that an excuse for not learning. That you're happy with your level of ignorance, that you belittle the value of knowledge and out of shame. The imam says, those who are ashamed, embarrassed, that someone may see you, someone may see me sitting in this lesson or in that lecture or trying to acquire more knowledge or maybe I'm older than these people or I'm whatever, I don't fit this group this is all under the, the, the category, the heading of shame and embarrassment. The Imam says, never let that become the reason why you don't learn. Okay, and we have, and inshallah we'll talk more about that as well in the, in the next uh, uh, section too. The, the, the only shameful thing in the narrations is to remain in a state of ignorance. Learning is, should be a matter of pride. It doesn't matter who you are and where you're getting the information. And at the end of the day, you are doing the right thing. The only wrong thing is not to learn. And so if there's a way to learn, work on it. Don't use the excuse that this is embarrassing or shameful or whatever it may be. Okay? And we highlighted the fact that given the difficulty and how scary it is when we looked at the narrations that talk about making sure that we have the right intents, we said that when we approach initially, when we approach knowledge, no one knows on day one when we start on this journey of acquiring knowledge. No one is going to intuitively know that they're supposed to do this with all of the best and right intentions unless you are somehow divinely guided. You are inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have a very clean fitrah. You might. But for the majority of the people, when you approach knowledge, you're going to approach it for a worldly reason first and foremost. You want to use that knowledge for some benefit in this world. What ends up happening, however, inshallah, as the hadith say, is that the knowledge itself is going to work on you. If you are good, 
If you want to be good, the knowledge, the ahadith said, it will work on you. And so it's not a good enough reason to say my intents initially in approaching, I can't secure them, I can't guarantee that this is going to be all for the right intentions. So therefore, I'm just not going to spend time learning. No, the hadith say, learn, even if your intentions are not perfect, they will become much better with time. Knowledge will work in your heart. And we gave many examples. If you remember, for instance, we said, this is how a lot of people end up becoming Muslims. They initially come to learn about our religion with the intent of showing that it is not a religion, that it cannot, it should not exist in today's world. And this has been the case since the time the Holy Prophet revealed this religion, where people would come to dispute with the, the Holy Prophet. They'd come to learn about religion to reject it, and to reject it publicly so that others reject it. And as soon as they learn a few things, that knowledge works on them, and they accept the truth. And this has continued to happen until today, and we went through a number of cases and examples. And this is kind of a more you know, uh, 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 intense or clear example to show that how far this goes, inshallah, none of us are approaching religion with this intent. But even someone who approaches knowledge, if there's a, a glimmer of hope and, and optimism about them, inshallah, that knowledge will work. And it will do, it's, it will have its effect, its spiritual effect, for that person to ultimately come back and use that knowledge with the right intent. All that to say, let's never fall into the trap of saying these criteria, the standard is too high for me to acquire knowledge for the, with all the right reasons, with all the right intentions, therefore it's better for me not to learn. No. The imams, the Holy Prophet say, learn it and the knowledge itself will work on you. And given enough time, inshallah, that knowledge is going to change you and your intentions are going to be good. And as we said, more materially, how things actually happen in the world, how would you know? If you don't spend time understanding this spiritual dimension of knowledge, how would you know that you're supposed to have such a, a careful attitude towards your intentions in acquiring knowledge? You don't know. This is what we call the double ignorance, right? You don't know that you don't know. So it's only as you acquire the knowledge, as we're doing now, when you go through the verses of the Qur'an, when you go through the narrations, that you start understanding, okay, I better go back and examine myself, examine my beliefs, examine my intentions. Am I really approaching this knowledge with the right intentions now that I know or not? But if you had closed the door earlier and said, I'm not going to learn because the standard is too high, you'll never even get here. Okay? So inshallah, this point is clear. We also spent a bit of time, it was very quick, to talk about the repercussions of carrying knowledge, approaching knowledge, and carrying knowledge with sincerity. And we said, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He will make everything respect you and revere you if you carry knowledge with sincerity. That was one thing. And then everything is made to uh, fear the person. Everything in the in the world is made to praise the person. So there are people and how they deal with you. And there's also the rest of the world and, or universe. And we talked also about that. And we also said that by opposition, someone who carries, that approaches the knowledge and carries the knowledge with all the bad intents, with evil intents, then that person is not only going to be 
fearing everything in this life, but there's also a punishment waiting for them in the afterlife. Okay, and then finally, we talked about some of the characteristics that we find in those who carry the knowledge with the right intentions and those who approach it and carry it with the wrong intentions. So for instance, and we saw there is a number of hadith from Imam Ali salam from the Holy Prophet, those who carry the knowledge with sincerity, they approach the knowledge, they learn it uh, with the right intents, they have humility in themselves, they have modesty among the people, they have an awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it increases them in worship. It increases them in their attachment to religion, their adherence to religion. They are people who have discipline over themselves, and that discipline goes very far. How in control you are of how you act and how you think and how you behave, right? Inshallah, we're going to talk more about that when we talk about sincerity in general. We saw that there are also people, if you remember, these were mainly in Nahj al-Balagha. There were some sections that we talked about in the sermons of Imam Ali alayhi salam when he talks to Kumail and, and in other instances where he explains that people who carry knowledge with sincerity are people who have a lot, of, take great precautions in every word they utter, right? What I listen to, what I say, what I lecture on, what I... Uh, give as an opinion about things. They take precaution. They're careful in what they say. They they do their homework and they examine their intentions. Okay, if I talk, it's because I know for certain. And if I don't, I have to present it that way. Um, and then we said both in speech and in silence, those people are acting based on good judgment and wisdom. So everything is under that discipline. I don't talk just to talk, just to hear myself and make people hear me. And by opposition, sometimes the wisest thing to do is not to talk, not to share my opinions on everything. I should not have an opinion on everything. I should be qualified before I talk. And even if I am qualified and even if I know, I don't need to share everything that I know about everything, right? And so on and so forth. So we talked about all of that. So all that to say, so both in speech and in silence, those people are always acting based on wisdom. Okay, so this is these are some of the characteristics that we're trying to emulate in ourselves and we want to look for in others, right? By opposition, those who carry the knowledge with the right with the wrong intentions, you those who approach the knowledge with the wrong intentions, not with sincerity. Okay, we saw by opposition, and again, mainly from Imam Ali alayhi salam, as well from the Holy Prophet, a number of narrations, um, they pretend to be pious. So there's a false khushu' that you always see, but it doesn't match what's going on the inside. And, and we define sincerity, we're going to come back to that in a second. Um, they often hurt or condescend others. Okay? Because of an air of superiority. Now I know and you don't. So I'm going to use that to elevate myself over you. Okay? I'm better. I'm superior. And I'm not going to shy away from using that and reminding you of that. So the imams, and sometimes, unfortunately, this is even the intent that I, this goes even further. Some people are just diseased that way. 
And some people, they approach it with that intent in the first place, that this is what I'm going to use to gain superiority over people. This is how I'm going to use it socially or in my community. Okay, so they are condescending to others. They, they are hurtful of others. They need to be seen and they need to be known. Okay, so if you approach it simply so that people, as we said, they recognize you and they uh, have a certain reputation of you as being knowledgeable. They are arrogant in themselves. They have superiority over other people. If you remember, the narration said, except those who are powerful and wealthy. In those cases, you see that suddenly they don't act arrogantly because they're trying to get something. So it's opportunism. Okay, they're trying to benefit somehow or end up in those ranks. So suddenly this is what they respect. If there's wealth, if there's power, then that makes them act in a different way. Okay, and then, they are belittling of God. Okay, the more knowledge they gain, the further away they start becoming of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of his religion. They are quick to jump uh, into every issue with an opinion. If you remember Imam Ali alayhi salam, more than once he talked about this. He says those who carry real knowledge, they're afraid. They stay away from giving their opinion and to have an opinion about everything and making it public. And, and those who uh, are in approaching the knowledge with the wrong intentions, they are very quick to jump in and they have an opinion about everything. And they grow distant from religion. And this will only lead to regret, humiliation in the afterlife. And it leads to their own misguidance because they stop being able to distinguish the truth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removes that guidance from them, that basira that we talked about. And so they are not able to distinguish the truth anymore. And they become a source of misguidance, not only for themselves, but for others as well. Okay, so that was what we covered in the first part. And then we talked about the second part. So the first part was intentions and knowledge, specifically. The second part was, let's simply explore what our religion says about intentions in general, about niyyah and ikhlas in general, beyond just knowledge. Okay, until now it was about knowledge. So obviously everything that we said applies here, and we built on that. We saw first and foremost that we saw a number of ahadith that tell us the purpose, the aim, the, the reason for religion to be revealed or for human beings to have faith, or uh, for uh, us to have you know, belief in general, it's to acquire ikhlas. Ikhlas, therefore, becomes the ultimate purpose for which we exist. Okay, and there are ways to understand this. We saw how these notions are built into each other, right? They call them the Russian dolls, for instance. Uh, so, but ultimately, you are worshipping and you are believing, but what's the ultimate purpose? It's that you reach a level of faith and knowledge that we refer to as ikhlas. This is your general attitude towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's first. Secondly, how do we understand sincerity in general? So we talked about it specifically, what it means for knowledge. But in general, when our religion talks about ikhlas, when our religion talks about having really good intentions, what are we talking about? So we said ikhlas is the highest form. And ikhlas, of course, itself has a lot of levels. But ikhlas is the highest level of good intents. You, you start with simply the neutral is just having intention. 
This is what gives direction to yourself and to your life and to your actions and to your attitude. Intention. Okay, so it can go both ways. Intention can be good. For instance, niya hasana, husnin niya. And it can go all the way to becoming ikhlas. So ikhlas becomes the highest form of good intent. So how do we understand this ikhlas? These are the definitions that we saw in the ahadith. The inside of the heart and the outer image of the human being have to match. That's one way to understand ikhlas. And we saw in the hadith that this was presented as the lower limit of ikhlas. And the upper limit of ikhlas, the inside, is much better than the outer image. So what's going on in your heart is much better than what people are seeing. But the minimum is that what's going on in your heart and what people are seeing, the public image, is at least matching. Okay, so this was the lower limit. Ikhlas means, as we saw, a cleansing of the heart, an emptying of the heart. And this is a theme that ran throughout the entire series. Until there is nothing left in the heart, this is the highest level, until there is nothing left in the heart except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we said, you know, this is a very, very difficult level to attain. But this is how our narrations presented. So therefore, it is something accessible. Yes, it's work, and yes, it's effort and struggle, but that's why it is the highest level of belief. That's why it is ikhlas. Okay? And even that is very relative. To the, to the degree that I can actually say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only thing in my heart, to that degree I can say I have ikhlas. So that's a source of a lot of reflection and self-examination. There are characteristics that we can find in ourselves, described in the Holy Quran, described in the narrations that talked about this. So how do I know? How do, what's the test? So one of the tests is, well, how much do I want to be recognized and how much do I want to be praised by others? The lowest level of ikhlas are people who are indifferent I don't care, but it's not with words that I'm saying I don't care. I really, honestly, in my heart of hearts, as they say, I do not care if someone is going to praise me for the work that I'm doing or not. That someone is going to recognize what I'm doing or not. Because I'm doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's all that matters. This is the minimum level of ikhlas. That I do not care. The higher level of ikhlas is that I dislike. I do not want to be praised. I do not want to be recognized and appreciated for the good work that I'm doing or how good I am. And we explained that. We said the truth of ikhlas is a form of a secret relationship between you, an intimate relationship between you as a servant and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as your creator. You don't want anything and anyone to interfere this is just between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You don't want someone to come and say, this is good, this is bad, this is... It's none of your concern. This is between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm not doing this for you. You're jumping into a very intimate, a very personal relationship. You have no affair coming into here. Okay? So there is a dislike, but that's a upper level. That's a higher level of ikhlas. So therefore, when we look at all of this, we said that 
other things that we must now keep in mind to work on our ikhlas. If you are truly someone who wants to achieve ikhlas, then you have to, and this was all pointed out in the ahadith, you have to be someone who is in control of your senses. How do you use the five senses? You have to be in control, you have to have discipline, because all of this ends up in the heart. Okay, how do you use the hand? How do you use the eye and the sight? How do you use your hearing? How do you use your speech? Every faculty that's given to you has to be under your control. Therefore, you act in a way that does never, does nothing negative to the relationship between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's one way of understanding ikhlas. You have to take it a level further. You have to be in control of your emotions. And we saw the ahadith, they say, people who have ikhlas, they only get, of course these are higher levels of ikhlas, but they only get happy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they only get sad for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they only get angry for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, this is someone who is fully and perfectly in control of their emotions, of their feelings. It's not your feelings that dictate what you're going to do next. Your feelings are under your control. You have discipline over your feelings. Okay? Not easy to say and not easy to do. Even beyond that, we saw that someone who has a very high level of ikhlas is also someone who is in control of their thoughts. That you don't let any thought just come by and start taking your state and your mind in whatever direction. So those distractions that happen in life, minute by minute, instant by instant, day by day, as we go on in our lives, someone who wants to achieve ikhlas has to be careful in what do you allow to distract you, to pull you? Those people, if you remember, we went through, for instance, some of the ad'iyah and sahif al-sajjadiyah and the whispered prayers of Imam al-Sajjad and others, where he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or he says, the whispers of the heart of those people, every whisper of our heart, we want to make it for you, for your sake. So imagine, you can't have any image just come into your mind, any thought come into your mind. It's going to remove you. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is really the only thing that's going to remain in that heart, there's constantly a bombardment of things that are trying to pull that heart in other directions. Are you just going to let them come in and pull you in those directions? So, of course, we started with things that are much more practical for us, the actions. But it goes very far. Beyond the actions, you have your feelings and emotions. We have to work on those. Beyond those, you have your thoughts, or as Imam Sajjad salam says, the whispers of your heart. Okay, Those things that are just between you and yourself. A whisper of the heart. Imam Sajjad says, he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the whispers of our hearts only for your sake. Even when there is something that my heart whispers, it's in that direction. Okay, so this is the higher, the upper level of ikhlas. And we said it's important to understand because this is where we're headed. This is the direction we want to take. Now, for many of us, when we think about this, we say that the task is daunting, it's too much, it's too difficult. Maybe, maybe it is, but at least you know which direction you're moving. You might not achieve all of this, but you will achieve a part of it. You're still moving in the right direction. As we said, the alternative, 
is not an option. Okay, so we have to move in this general direction. The next topic we talked about was that if we understand intentions and we understand ikhlas, now let's focus more on intentions. And we saw the hadith from the imams, we saw hadith from the Holy Prophet talking to Abu Dhar. He tells him, make sure you have an intention for everything. Everything that you do should have an intention. For the things that are important in your life, for sure. And most likely, you are going to have an intention behind them. Inshallah, you also have your intentions behind your acts of worship. But again, intention here does not mean some ritual. You know, you just say the words or you think the thought, I'm just standing here and praying to rakaat to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Intention means, how are you directing your heart towards something? You fully understand what you're going to do, what you're about to engage in. And that intent stays with you as you perform the act. And as we said, it stays with you after the act is performed. Sometimes you perform it with the right intention. And then while you performed it, as the imam says, you performed it only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wahdahu la sharika lah, if you remember how the hadith stated it. And then he says, and then you go, and the person goes, and you start talking about the act of worship that you performed in secret. No one knew about it, but you go and talk about it. And so the angels, the scribes, they erase it and they write it as now it's become a public act. It's still good, but it's now a public act. But the person keeps talking about it. And now instead of just becoming a public act, it becomes an act simply for show. And then even that thawab is now erased. Now it's for show. It, become, it became riyah. Right? So all of that to, to keep in mind, all of that starts with making sure that everything that is done, everything that is said, and everything that is not done, and everything that is not said, is with an intention. So everything that I do, I know why I'm doing it. And everything I don't do, I also know why I'm not doing it. There's an intent behind it. Even the things that are very trivial, even something as simple as I'm about to go to sleep, I'm about to go to work, I'm about to eat, I'm about to play, all of that can have an intention. And so this we, we saw in the hadith, the imams said, if you do not do this, every human being must have an intention behind every act, the imam said. And if you do not do this, you are considered من الغافلين. You have غفله. You are heedless. And the Imam in the Ruwayah, he said, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described those who are heedless. In whom illa kal an'am. You've become like cattle. No, you are more astray. Why? Because you have no intent. Because you don't know what you're doing. You're simply being dragged or pulled or pushed by your, by your biological, psychological, whatever impulses. You've lost the humanity part. The free will and the act based on your intellect. Now you're behaving like an animal would behave. You're hungry, you eat. You're sleepy, you go sleep. No, a human being thinks. Maybe this is not the time to eat. Maybe sleeping is inappropriate here. Right? And this is a lot in our religion is based on this, your ability to control this. 
your ability to become fully human and not fall into just the biological level and the impulses that dictate your life. Okay, so, and we said here, there's a whole discussion that we can have. We alluded to it, I think, enough that we don't need to spend too much time on it. But if we apply this to our lives, this also means that if you're really thinking about everything that you do, then this is going to help you avoid becoming what they call sheeple, right? People who are sheep, who just follow. Whatever is happening in society, this is how people dress, this is how I dress, this is how people eat, this is how I eat, this is how people, this is what they're doing, and this is what they're wearing, and this is how they're talking, this is what they're eating, that's what I do. No, you have to think about this. And if you are forcing yourself to make sure that you have an intention before you approach anything, then at least there's this layer now. What I'm about to do, what I'm about to eat, what I'm about to you know, study, what I'm about to, where I'm about to work, what I'm about to drive, what I'm about to wear, I have to think about it in order to have an intention. I can't be heedless, right? I can't just go with the flow and follow blindly just because this is what's happening in society. And to a very large extent, and unfortunately we don't talk about this enough, inshallah we're going to come back to it later in the series, to talk about this critical mind, to a very large extent, the purpose of religion is to build this into you. So that it's not just because the majority are saying something that you just do it. And the majority are doing something that you just accept it, as though it is good. That's not good enough of a reason. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us all a mind that can be very critical. Use it wisely. That's the meaning of intellect. That's one of the purposes of religion. That you don't just accept things as you are fed by society. In general, what's coming from society, in the best case scenario, we're going to say it's neutral. If you follow closely the verses of the Quran, it says the majority of what you're going to be fed from society is not good. It will be harmful. It will be misguiding. It will only lead to ingratitude and kufr and disbelief and so on and so forth. Okay, so inshallah we're going to come back to that later. We saw how the narrations are also clear in that we cannot separate action from intention. Okay? You cannot just look at actions on their own and consider actions to be good. Prayer, fasting, charity, or any other action in the world. Someone who is suddenly into philanthropy and they're giving money away to, you know, good causes, for instance. Without looking at an intention, we cannot assess the action. The action is meaningless on its own. For us as human beings, because we have one to compartmentalize, it can carry some meaning. We say the act in itself looks like it's a good act. One, because we have to compartmentalize. Things are usually too complex for us to look at all the dimensions in one shot. So we have to break them down into dimensions. And two, because we can never really get to the real intentions, why someone is doing something. So it remains between the human being and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why we can't assess the value and merit of any act or any human being in this world. Unless I have a guarantee. Unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells me, that person there, his intentions are good. Or when he did that act, that act was good. Now I know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told me what their intentions were. Otherwise, how can I know? I can assume there are clues 
but I can never know for, for sure, right? So based on this idea that we can't separate action from intention, we also said, and therefore we can't separate action from knowledge and intention from knowledge, which is the, the point of the whole series. The first thing is that, the first conclusion is that intentions are worth more than action. Intentions are more important than actions. That was the first layer, and we saw the hadith related to this. We said our conclusion, the way we worded it, is quality over quantity. Okay, this is, intention is so important that you do a little bit of it, but it's the right intent. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers that a lot, and He rewards you for, for it as though it is a lot. And you might do a lot, but the intentions are not good, and it becomes either little or insignificant. Okay, so the intent is much more important than action. And then we took it a level further. And we said, in fact, the only thing that matters is intention. Action becomes completely secondary. We're going to come back to that because, of course, this raises an objection. And we said, it's not intention generally. It's intention with sincerity. It's sincere intention that is all that matters. If you have sincerity in your intention, it means that you truly intend to act and you you do not act, you still get the reward as though you acted. We saw the multiple, numerous narrations related to this. Okay, so intention is all that really matters so long as what we're talking about is sincerity. Sincere intentions is all that matters. So intent to do good as we saw, if you remember the ahadith, you intend to do good, you get a reward for intending to do good. You haven't done the good yet. If you are truly sincere in wanting to do good and you never end up doing it because something prevented you from doing it, it could be any circumstance in life, you truly intended to do it and you were prevented from doing it, you still get the full thawab as though you did it. Someone who intends to do bad, so long as they have not done the bad, they've resisted doing the bad, but the intent is still there, you are getting rewarded for the resistance to do the bad. It's an evil intent. It's an intent to do a disobedience, a sin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you so long as the sin has not become reality. So long as you're resisting not doing it. And then only when the sin is performed, the disobedience is performed, that's when it's registered as a sin. And even that in the narrations, we are told sometimes these angels are asked to wait X number of hours, six hours or half a day. Perhaps the servant of Allah will remember and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for repentance or forgiveness because they just performed it. And maybe they will regret and this regret will be enough for them to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to repent. In any case, that's a, that's another topic. The next point is that, and so this is always related to intention is all that matters. The believer, as we said, is never going to attain. Imam Ali salam says, a believer has high intentions. Intentions to do a lot of good in a very good way. And a believer will never attain fully those intentions. So we concluded from that, therefore, aim high and aim big. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Ali alayhi salam says, 
He will reward you for those high intentions that life will prevent you from reaching. Still, have those high intentions, so long as they are sincere. When you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a lot of money so that you can use it doing good, you're getting reward as though you did spend that money doing the good, if your intentions are sincere. Okay? So there is worth and there is merit in those good intentions that you have, even if they never translate into actual action in the outside world. Okay. Even though, um, yeah, the next topic is every thought, therefore, matters. These thoughts of ours, sometimes we think it's just a thought, but nothing materializes it doesn't crystallize into an action in the real world. Well, based on our understanding of religion, clearly they do mean something. The thought that you have, the intent that you have, the sincerity that you have, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is recognizing it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is rewarding you for it. And of course, the same can be said about sins and evil intentions. We're focusing right now, let's focus on the good ones, the positive ones. Okay, so never have this idea that it's just a thought and the thoughts are meaningless, they're without value. No, the thoughts are recognized by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they are rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We also saw that the reward is uh, good and sincere while it meets a condition. You are getting rewarded. Imam Sadiq was asked, when does something become an act of worship? When does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consider this to be a ta'ah? What, when, what, what criteria must be met, respected, observed? And Imam Sadiq says, so long as you have sincere or good intent, if you remember the hadith, husnan right? So you have a good intention to perform an act of worship, an act of obedience, so long as it meets the sunnah, Imam Sadiq says. What does that mean? That means first of all, while everything that we're saying is true, some level of knowledge is required. Even when I intend to do something good, I have to make sure that this is actually something Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to do. I understand what the sunnah is. I understand what the tradition of the Holy Prophet and the religion that he brought to humanity is. And there's also a second layer to this, which means my intent is to comply with this religion. And this is important. It's not just every thought. The thought has to match what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has says, this is what I want from you as human beings. Right? There's an alignment there between what I want and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. Once it is aligned, then that good thought that I have is now worth something. My sincere intent to do it, even though I have not done it yet, I'm already in a state of obedience. I'm already in a state of ta'a, as Imam Sadiq salam says. The next topic we talked about, and we saw this in a number of narrations, was this theme of community. And we found it in a number of hadith. We saw that 
one way, the majority of us, when we think about community, we think, well, who are the people we live with, who have similarities or overlaps with us, and so on and so forth. Based on our understanding of what is being said about intentions, we saw that intents are what create a community. The notion of community is broader than what the majority of us think about when we think about community. First, we saw the hadith that say that a human being may end up in heaven just because someone requires help and they cannot help them, but they feel grief and sympathy for that person who needs their help and they can't help them, but they are sincere in wanting to help them, but they can't. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have some people enter paradise for that feeling for that sympathy, for that grief, right? يتلهف لهف in the in the ruaya. Okay, so this tells us what? This tells us that the feelings you have towards other people can create a community. Someone may be sitting halfway around the world and they need help and you feel grief, you feel sympathy, compassion towards them but you can't do anything to help them that person and you are now part of a community. That's one. Two, we saw that there are a number of cases we looked at and from all of them we concluded that there are people who are not living with us today. People who will come in the future or people who have lived in the past. But because we sincerely intend to, if we could, be with those people, help those people, act with them, we are now part of the same community. And this is how we said, you create a community across time and across geography and space. This is community. This is the ummah. This is how you are part of the companions of an imam. Or you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make you part of the companions of an imam, to support an imam. Through what? You're not doing anything. And Imam Ali was saying, those people who wish your brother when he came and he told him, my brother wishes that he, was, he would have been present with us today. He told him, well, does he agree with what we are doing? Does he believe in what we are doing? Is this his firm position that he is with us, even though he could not be with us? He told him, yes. He told him that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has counted him among those who are with us. And then he said, and there will be people who are not born yet, and their parents have not been born yet. The Imam says he's talking about future generations and they will be counted amongst those who are with us today. Why? Because they agree and they believe in what we're doing. It's a matter of position and values and beliefs and faith. What's your intent? Are you sincere in that intent? That intent is what will create the community. Not Necessarily, you know, that someone is your neighbor or someone is someone who lives close and you see them. Yes, that is a the superficial understanding of community. But the real meaning of it is that there's something common at the level of the beliefs and at the level of the values and the level of the intentions. If those intentions are overlapping, then you have a community. And this is very important. Because it means this is how you link back your work and your entity and your identity to perhaps things that happened thousands of years ago. Why is it so important that we know about all these other prophets throughout history? 
Because this is a community. This is one meaning of community. That you associate with those people through your intentions. The next point. We said what does it mean and what does it not mean practically to talk about sincerity. So the, we spent a little bit of time on this. And inshallah the point is now clear. That, commu- that uh, sincerity is not about rituals. As important as acts of worship are, acts of worship on their own are simply rituals. Rituals have to have an intent. The value of the ritual is the intent behind it. The value of the prayer is the intent. The value of your fasting is the intent behind it. The value of reciting the Quran, performing the pilgrimage, doing, uh, giving your zakah and so on and so forth is all based on the intent behind that act, not the act in itself. And we went through the narration, so we won't spend too much time on that. Then we saw examples of practical instances that were all considered ikhlas. One of them, for instance, was the story of Prophet Musa where after his long trip, he is fearful, he, he is hiding, running away for his life, and at the end when he is invited to supper by this man, the father of the two women that he helped, he refuses to eat initially because he's afraid that this might be considered a reward for his work. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not reward him for what he did. And he doesn't want that. He wants the act to remain sincere and pure. This was done only and only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If I help those people, I help them for Allah. I don't want something else to come and, and interfere with my relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you remember that story, we also gave the example of the man who was working very hard and the companions of the Holy Prophet saw him and they said if only he was doing all of this for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Obviously this one was, he, he was not performing acts that, you know, we would say these are acts of worship. He's maybe working in a garden, he's carrying heavy things, who knows what he's doing. He's just hard at work. And the Holy Prophet told them so long as this person is doing this to help elderly parents or his young children or himself so that he remains dignified or he remains away from sin, then all of this is for the sake of God. These are acts of worship. This person's hard work is an act of worship that is sincere. All of this are acts of worship. This is the importance of intention behind what we do. That's why we say the notion is much wider than what we usually, how we view it or how we label it. Is this an act of worship? It has to be in a mosque or it has to look this way or it has to feel that way. Yes, there are rituals. The rituals themselves, they only mean something depending on the intention behind them. And those who killed Imam Hussain on the 10th of Muharram, they stood and they prayed. And Imam Hussain stood and prayed. Same prayer. The outside of it looks the same. The only difference is the intention. The act in itself, the external appearance of the act does not mean anything. It means something with the intention behind it. And it does not need to be the act that we always refer to as an act of worship and a ritual of worship. So this man carrying heavy loads or working hard in a garden, this is an act of worship, the Holy Prophet says, so long as he's not doing this in disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you remember that uh, story. 
we saw how Imam Ali السلام, in his mandate letter to Malik al-Ishtar, he told him at the end when he talks finally about the sincerity and the intentions of all of these acts, he tells him how to behave with these people that he's going to go over and rule over them. He tells him and choose the best of times, so make sure that you deal with all of their affairs as quickly as they happen, but choose the best of times for your worship and your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then finally he tells him, even though everything that we have described or everything that you are doing is an act of worship, all of this is an obedience, all of this is an act of worship, that you are going there, that you are ruling over people, that you are writing letters as people ask you questions. This is just, we would say this is a trivial day-to-day affairs, political affairs of a government. Imam says all of this, is, these are acts of worship. So yes, keep the best of times to continue performing your worship towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though everything we talked about is an act of worship. Okay, to re-emphasize the point that we've been trying to make. And so, yeah, this brings us back to having good intentions towards everything that we do. Um, we saw there, there's a hadith that talked about having good intentions in everything. Imam Ali alayhi salam was saying, including, and he gave two very important examples. He could have given many others, but he gave two specific examples and he qualified them. He said, have intentions towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and worshiping him. And make those intentions strong. Have strong intentions to worship Allah. And have beautiful intentions towards people. Okay, so have intentions for everything. And when it comes to worshiping God, have strong intentions. No weakness in it. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likes. He likes to have his servant have a strong intent to worship him. And beautiful intentions, that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likes to, to see his servant have beautiful intentions towards people. And that's when we talked about this does not mean falling into being innocent and naive, if you remember. Okay? Then we talked about the repercussions of having good intentions. And we said these repercussions fall into a number of different categories. If you have evil intentions, the hadith, many of them were say, Al-Mu'min, yuhram rizqah. Right? This is someone who's a believer, but they intend to perform a sin, then there is some rizq, there's some sustenance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to send to you, you've now just been deprived of it. Because of your intent to perform a sin. And so this brings us back to the idea, we talked about it a number of times, that there are things that happen in this world There are laws that govern this world beyond the material. That thought that you had means something. Even if, in this case, we saw the hadith say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not recording this against you as a sin. So you have not performed a sin, so there is no afterlife punishment for it. But it doesn't mean that there's no effect in this world either. There is an effect. In this case, the effect was that you've deprived yourself of a sustenance coming your way because you intended to do something evil. Okay, so this is the idea that every thought counts. Every intention counts. This is the importance of controlling your thoughts. 
There are repercussions to it in this world before the afterlife, before the heaven and hell and reward and punishment of the afterlife. There are things happening in this world determined very much by how you think and what you intend to do. The person who has sincerity of intentions is described as someone who is, everyone else is at peace, we're told, at peace from their speech and their actions or their tongue and their hand. In the, in the narrations The person who is Sincere Is going to have And we call this huge category We call it success They will achieve success For a number of reasons First of all the person who has good intentions If you have intentions And you're clear about what you're doing This gives you clarity and vision You want to know and then you want to do, and then you plan on doing. These are material means to get to there. So it's very logical to say the person who has intentions will get to success, but it goes way beyond that. There's a psychological component to this. There is thinking positively and the confidence you get to get there, but it goes beyond that. There's a social dimension to it too. When people recognize that this person is sincere, they are much more willing to help, to associate with this person, to forgive the person when they make mistakes, and we all do in everything we do. So all of this is going to contribute to success. And we saw how many hadith, especially from Imam Ali salam, but we saw from other imams as well. You want to achieve, you want to attain success, have sincerity. And so we're understanding this on both sides. There's a religious, spiritual component to this, and there's a day-to-day -day living in this world component to this right and then of course beyond all of this clearly there is a divine care that this person is get, getting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables this person supports this person who shows sincerity in everything they do you get a push and a nudge and a special care from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to achieve what you're aiming to achieve there's a whole discussion that we had I'm not going to repeat it very quickly about the law of attraction and how it is a misgiving, it's it's faulty, it's problematic, these new notions, new age notions or modern notions. There's another one I wanted to mention very quickly. We're already beyond the time, so let's keep moving. We also saw a hadith talking about, speaking of the repercussions, we saw a hadith that talks about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made this nation, as the Holy Prophet says, victorious and successful because of those who are weakest because of their prayers and because of their sincerity so inshallah this also becomes part of what we keep in mind inshallah when we talk about community and community building and never to overlook anyone in the community even though they may look like they are the weakest as some of the companions of the holy prophet did the mistake that they fell into thinking that I'm the one who spends more, I'm the one who participates more in the battles, I'm the one who is more prominent, I'm the one who is the head of the tribe. And those people, they, they don't really count because they're invisible or they're weak and powerless in our community, in our nation. The Holy Prophet told that, that man and his companions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made us as a nation victorious because of those who are weakest amongst us. Amongst us. Those who are sincere in their worship and in their prayers and in their invocations to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we talked about the spirituality associated with intentions. 
having sincere intentions, has spiritual repercussions. Your prayers are answered. We saw that hadith from Imam Ali salam. The trials, the tribulations that we go through individually or collectively, they are uh, alleviated. They are either weakened. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mercy, so he weakens those trials, or he removes them entirely, as Imam Ali salam said. The good deeds, we are told, this, this is all the spiritual repercussions of sincerity. The more sincerity you have, the more your good deeds grow. Tazku, zakat al-a'mal, as Imam Ali salam said. And we said zakat is to grow, just like a plant. Zakat is shajara. So this is when you become more fruitful. You multiply and grow. Okay? So this is, it has a worldly meaning and it has an otherworldly, afterworldly meaning. That your rewards are multiplied. But the benefits of those appear in this world. The blessings of the work appear in this world when there is sincerity. Spiritual insight and guidance. We saw how many ahadith talk about those who, the more they have sincerity, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them basira. He opens the, the, the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the soul, and He makes you able to distinguish the truth from everything else. You are able to recognize it for yourself, and you, became, you become a source of guidance for others. We saw that they, the Holy Prophet, Muhammad Ali spoke about those people. He says they become lanterns of guidance for others. When everybody else is lost, those people know where, where they're going. This guidance comes from sincerity. Those people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them a joy or a sweetness of worshipping Him. And we talked about the sweetness. This halawa is described specifically in this way. There's a sweetness to worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is tasted, that is experienced by those who have sincerity towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Someone who has that type of sweetness, of course, is not going to struggle to worship. You and I may struggle because we are fighting ourselves because there are things that are more sweet, that are more pleasurable instead of standing here and worshiping Allah or fasting for the sake of Allah when everybody else is eating and I don't need to or taking out of my money and giving it for Allah's sake. There are much more pleasurable things to do but there are people who reach a point where those actions, those acts become sweet. They become something that is enjoyed. And if you reach that level, the struggle is being removed. And in fact, the struggle is not performing those acts. Right? And inshallah, we'll talk more about that in the future. And we spent enough time on this as well. We saw that those who have sincerity, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in one quick hadith, he makes the springs or the streams of wisdom explode from their hearts unto their tongues, as the hadith says, so long as, and that's a condition, and that was a theme, so long as they kept the state, they maintained the state of sincerity 40 days, right? And so this highlights the idea, it's not about the 40 days, it's about maintaining it until it becomes your normal state. When something becomes your normal state, your second nature, it changes who you are entirely. Okay? So those people, they reach a point where, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them this gift of wisdom, hikmah. Right? We also said that in the more spiritual way of understanding the repercussions of the good and the bad, 
the imams were explaining to some of the companions that when you intend to do something bad, there's a, an awful odor, a repulsing odor, repulsive odor that comes out of, a stench that comes out of you. And the opposite, someone who intends, he hasn't done the good yet, you intend to do good, then there is this beautiful fragrance that comes out of you. And the imam was describing this to his companion, telling him, and this is how the angels know, the angels who are the scribes, they know that you're about to do something good. And they talk to each other, and one of them tells the other, he's about to do something good. Get up, it's your turn to write. Okay? Or he's about to do something bad, evil. Because your state changes. Okay? You, who you are and what you are and what you exude in the world changes based on those intentions that you have. We said also that the hadith are clear that those who, the more sincerity you have, the more you fall under the special care of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Obviously, everyone is under the care of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but not to the same extent. By the way, this is one of the definitions and interpretations that are given for the difference between Rahman and Rahim. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the more someone becomes has ikhlas, more ikhlas you have, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes over a special type of care. He takes care of you. He manages your affairs because you are dedicating more of yourself to Him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes care of your affairs that you are not spending too much time on and which you don't control in the first place as the narration said. You think you're under the illusion that you are the one controlling your relationship with how people view you or how much sustenance you're going to get at the end or not. All you can do is put in the work, but what happens afterwards is not under your control in any way. Okay? So we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manages these affairs of these people. He makes people as you increase in sincerity. He makes people respect you more, revere you more, lean towards you. And so of course this brings us back to the discussion for this world of success in this world and so on and so forth. Okay, recognition, power, reputation. In fact, the hadith said everything in the world is made to revere you. Everything in the world is made. So beyond the human beings, it's as though you're aligning with how the universe works by agreeing, by accepting how to, or uh, following Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and having a relationship exclusively with Him. Okay, and so obviously this brings us back constantly to the idea of the non-material laws behind this world. We're going to come back to that topic, inshallah, in the future. And then we finished that whole spiritual discussion with the, um, we called it the secret. We began the series, this series of sincerity by saying that sincerity means you have an exclusive relationship with Allah. That your heart is empty of anything and everything except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we saw in a number of narrations how they say that it is a secret. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hadith Qudsi, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the ikhlas sirri, there's a secret. And I am the one who deposits it, this ikhlas into the heart of the servant that I love. And we talked about how therefore to become of those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves. As the Quran says, ittabi'uni yuhbibkum Allah. Right? Follow me, the Holy Prophet says, brings us back to the sunnah that we talked about. It has to be compliant with the sunnah so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves you. And what is it? What does it really mean? We can never know. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it's a secret. It's my secret. 
and the imams talked about this. They say that this secret is maintained and observed and protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until the day of the judgment. When these people come and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes sure that their registers, that your kitab, that your sahifa that has all of your a'mal is empty. There's nothing in it. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want anyone, including the angels, to know what's going on between you and him. Because you had that type of relationship between yourself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala maintains it that way until these people are standing before him in the afterlife. And then he rewards them personally for the secret, for the intimate relationship that they had with their creator, with their Lord. Okay, and then we talked, and very quickly I'll go over this. We talked about how to achieve all of this. Okay, and we ended with this, and we went very quickly. First of all, we said sincerity is described in some narrations as the shahada. Saying, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. But the Holy Prophet and the Imams explained that this means, these words, what they actually mean in the outside world is never to engage in sin. These words must prevent you from sinning. If the words la ilaha illallah prevent you from sinning, then you have ikhlas. And the more they prevent you from sinning, the more ikhlas you have. This is the true meaning of la ilaha illallah, that I only worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that only Allah is my Lord and my creator. I don't worship other people. I don't worship myself and my desires. I don't worship my weaknesses. I don't worship, I only worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I listen and obey. To the extent that you believe this and this is true, then you are sincere. Okay? So this tells us how to achieve sincerity. Step one. Step one in achieving sincerity, stay away from sins. Okay? Disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ruins your relationship with Allah. That's one. Two, we're not talking about empty rituals. Therefore, rituals themselves not good enough. You need to add intention including the shahada. The shahada becomes an empty ritual if it does not lead to staying away from sins. Okay? Three, related to this, therefore, let's constantly educate ourselves about the acts of worship that we're performing so they never become empty rituals. Simply mechanical, automatic movements, robotic movements that we perform. It has to mean something spiritually for us. Okay, okay? The next point was that there has to be worship. And this is an answer to an objection which we may have, which is it's all about the inside, that's all that matters. No, we were told, Al-Ikhlas Thamaratul Ibadah. Okay, this is the fruit of your worship is going to be. So worship means you are performing the acts of worship. You can't say the only the inside matters. You have to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the outside what matters. Not simply say the words, otherwise it means you're not sincere. Okay, so you have to perform it with sincerity and you have to have worship too. The third point is that the we said the intentions that we have, good and bad. We keep focusing on the good, but there are bad intentions. Good and bad intentions, they stem, they come out of something much more fundamental in our nature, much deeper in our nature. We have to work on that much more fundamental aspect or portion of us so that what comes out of it, the intentions that come out of it, are good intentions, naturally good intentions. That I don't have to fight with myself to come up with a good intention. The good intention comes out on its own because what's underlying 
the foundation from which these intentions come out is a good foundation. Right? And the bad is the same thing. Imam Ali alayhi salam was talking about these bad intentions. He says, Da'un Dafin. Right? It's a deeply buried illness, a deeply buried disease. It's not at the surface. The surface is what I'm seeing. But there's something very deep from where this is stemming. You have to work on that. And in very short, and inshallah in the future we'll talk about this much more, in very short, the secret to working on that very deep level is repetition. Repetition until it becomes your second nature. And our whole religion is is built on repetition. That's why you have to repeat the same prayers every day your entire life. Every act of worship, you see that there's a performance of it that is repeated enough that it changes you. If it's a traumatic enough event, you go to the pilgrimage once, there is an effect that will happen. But performing your worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows we need to repeat this at least five times a day so that it has an impact over years of repetition so that these words mean something at a very fundamental level. Okay, it has to become your second nature. There are narrations, we saw the 40-day narration of the hikmah of sincerity, but this is someone who's already very good and that's why 40 days are sufficient because they're, we're talking about sincerity. There are narrations, inshallah, in the future, maybe this is a topic we need to talk about. We have narrations clearly that say you stay on the act, on the ritual for one year. Do not let go of the ritual for one year so that it changes you spiritually. The imams say this. We wouldn't know this. How do I know how long I have to stay on it? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to tell me, you do this for that many times, there's an effect. 30 days of, of fasting will have an effect on you. 28 is not enough. 42, that's, that's bonus. 30 is the minimum you have to do. You have to worship me and remem- remember me five times a day. You have to perform that. A human being on their own, we have no way of, of telling this, of knowing this on our own. You can't put this in a lab and do tests on it. Okay? The next point is that, so therefore, let's work on that much level, deeper level, much more fundamental level. And this includes the heart. And we saw the, the, the verses of the Quran that talk about Al-Qalb Al-Salim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us to have the sound heart. And the sound heart is the only one that will really matter in the afterlife. And we saw the, the interpretation of Al-Qalb Al-Salim, right? It brought us back to the heart that has no one in it except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Remember the story of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, who's talking to Allah in his in his invocation in Surah Al-Shu'ara until he says, Illa man I want you to, to, to forgive my sin on the day of judgment, the day that nothing will be of any merit or value of avail, except the one, nor children nor, nor wealth, except the one who comes to you, comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a sound heart, qalbin salim. Okay? So there are no no one in it, but there's also no spiritual disease. And a lot of what we're talking about are spiritual diseases, right? Envy, uh, hypocrisy, these these are spiritual diseases. Hypocrisy is you're two-faced, at least two-faced, maybe you're ten-faced, okay? There are multiple versions of you. It's not a sound heart, right? The same thing with envy and jealousy and arrogance and superiority and not being modest and humble and human and so on and so forth, Okay? And then we also saw the hadith from the Holy Prophet. So this is a reminder and to close the loop. Reminder, the Holy Prophet explained the verse. He said, this is about the intellect. And then he explained the intellect as the person who has the more fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so the sincerity, having true sincerity comes from 
exercising your intellect. That's why we're talking about all of this. See how the, it all connects. We've been talking about knowledge. The point of all of this is to acquire knowledge and use your intellect. The Holy Prophet says, the sincerity is stemming from the intellect. And intellect means the fear of God. Okay? So the, these, this is how these things explain each other, interpret each other. And of course, he added to that, the Holy Prophet, the fear of God and acting with sincerity. Okay. So all of this brings us to the how, the how, the last points. First of all, it requires effort. Remember the hadith from Isa alayhi salam telling people how you pick and pluck and choose the best food and grain and prepare it meticulously until you make it the best of food? Then do that with your religion. Spend, put in that much care and energy and effort polishing your religion. Putting in the care in your religion and in your faith and your belief and in your manners. Okay, so that's one. So it takes effort and, and work. The second point is that you have to want to be sincere. We can talk, as they say, until the cows come home. We can talk for a very long time. Ultimately, all of this begins with an intent from you, a sincere intent to really want to be sincere, to move in that direction. And we said this is important, yes, because it becomes your first step on the journey. But I would argue even more, it's important because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes your desire to be good. And we said He rewards it. That you want to be sincere is what makes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the sincerity in your heart. The hadith was very clear. So you have to want, you have to desire to be sincere. That's another how. We said the sincerity is, Imam Ali had a number of narrations. He talked about knowledge. He said sincerity is the fruit of worship. We already talked about it. And another one, he said the sincerity is the fruit of knowledge. And then he qualified it. He said sincerity is the fruit of yaqeen, of certainty, which brings us back to knowledge. You can only be truly sincere towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by having enough knowledge that you want to move in that direction. That's why we keep saying, no matter where we look, if you look far enough, you get back to the topic of knowledge and intellect. Okay? It's everywhere. The last point that we finished with was youth. And we said this is a great opportunity that you have. The younger you are, the more youthful you are, as Imam Ali salam was saying, the more purity you still have and the more sincerity you still have. By nature. And then as you go in life, tougher and tougher it becomes to recreate that purity that you had. The sooner you start, the earlier, the younger you start. This is from Imam Ali in his letter to his son. That's what we ended with. He says, now, I want to teach you now, now that you are facing your life, while you are still pure and sincere. You still have pure, a pure heart and sincere intentions. So, Seize the opportunity of your young age, younger age. If you're 50, you still have the years coming ahead. You are younger today than you will be tomorrow. And if you're 20, you're much younger than you will be when you're 22 or 25 or 30. The younger you start, the more chance you're giving to yourself to remain and to improve on your internal purity and on your sincerity. Okay, so... This is the wrap-up. I just wanted to take maybe five minutes more. There's a few things that I wanted to 
finalize with just so that the series is complete when it comes to sincerity. The first remark is that the objection that all that matters is what's on the inside. We've focused a lot on spirituality. We've focused a lot on intentions, knowledge, and faith, and belief. We've talked a lot about good intentions. So someone may might think, so all that matters is what's on the inside. If your intentions are good, what else matters? Okay? That's the strong form of the objection. The weaker form of the objection is that maybe it doesn't matter that much. You know, for instance, how much I worship. Because really what matters is what's on the inside. And in fact, we have entire factions, denominations, sects in Islam that believe in this. Okay, that believe that all that matters is what's on the inside. And this exists in every religion. And you have both extremes. Those who are obsessed with the external appearance and image of, of the rituals, and they don't look at anything happening on the inside. And those who are only focused on what's happening on the inside, and they don't look at anything happening on the outside. You can do how whatever sins and disobedience you want, so long as the inside is good, that's all that matters. So obviously these both are wrong. But to answer this question specifically, no one can claim that in what we have presented, and this could be addressed in a whole series, okay? In what we have presented, no one should be coming back and saying, therefore, all that matters is only what's on the inside. Inshallah, we made that part clear. We said intentions have to be sincere, and that includes action. You have to have sincere intentions to do the right thing, to do the right thing. Now, you may not get to it, but that's different. If you were sincere in wanting to get to the good, then that's what you're rewarded on. It's not that I don't do the good, but my intentions are generally, that's not sincere. And the test is when you are put in this situation, will you act in this way or not? So when you are put in that situation, it's much harder than just to say the words or to have the thoughts, I will do the right thing. This requires a bit of self-examination and really being honest with yourself. Okay, and we gave examples, someone who is sick, someone who is incapable, someone who really genuinely doesn't know. Okay, and then the other point related to this is that we saw the condition of having to be compatible with the sunnah, as Imam Sadiq says. You have to be compatible with what the Holy Prophet presented to the world, that this is generally what God wants human beings to do. It has to match that. Okay, you cannot have good intentions to do something that does not match the sunnah. And we believe that everything that is good will be found in the sunnah. Okay. The second uh, point related to this is that the intent, the intent is the driver to act. It's what motivates it, what fuels or gives direction to your action. What really matters is the action. Okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is focused on what you're doing, but what, uh, what you're intending to do, the direction that you're giving to the action. That's what gives it value. But you're qualifying the action. At the end of the day, there is an act that has to be performed, but it has to be performed in a certain way. The discussion should never be, should there be an act performed? Or human beings, we live in an outside world. We don't live in the spirit world. We have spirits. Those spirits give direction to what we do. But what matters is what we do. 
or what we're trying to do. Okay? So it's always sincere action. So this is the component that we kept aside so that we're very clear on sincerity. Inshallah, we're going to go back to action soon. But this is a short answer to this question that, or the objection that someone may have that all that matters is what's on the inside. No, no, not only what's on the inside. There's also an outside. There are expectations, there are duties. We have to comply with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. And that's why we said from the beginning that the point here is that we perform sincere actions. It's not sincere. Sincerity doesn't exist on its own. Sincerity is sincerity in action. And if you want to look at it just with this little nugget from the Holy Quran, when how many times does the Holy Quran talk about amanu wa amilu salihat? There's no amanu. There's amanu wa amilu salihat. Everything we've said falls under amanu. Sincerity, good intentions fall under amanu. The Holy Quran says, those who have believed, those who have faith, and they did good. You can't ignore the they did good part and say they have the right intentions. What's on the inside that counts. You need both. Okay? The next point is the unexamined life. And I've mentioned this very quickly, but I called it something else. I called it intentional lives. I said earlier that those who live based on these teachings are going to have intentional lives. Meaning that everything in their lives is done with intent. One way to understand this in today's world, because this is a very famous passage, is to live the examined life. This is a passage from philosophy. Initially, this was said in one of the works of Plato. It's called the Apology. When they decided in Athena that they were going to put Socrates to death, he was put on trial for not believing in the divinities of Athena, of the Greeks, and for corrupting the youth. So they told him to defend himself, and he was found guilty, and they told him, okay, tell us what you think should be your punishment. And at the end, they told, he told them nothing, or if you really want me to, maybe I can pay a fine. Okay, and they went and they deliberated, and they came back and they said, we're going to make you drink this poison, and you're going to be put to death. So there is a passage in there in which he tells them that... Um, although you're not going to understand what I'm going to say, because you are so different in your thinking than I am, he tells them, it's not really worth for a man to go on living without being able to converse and talk about virtue and truth every day, or to live an unexamined life, because the unexamined life is not worth living, he says, that passage. And then that passage, so this is 2,000 years ago, but that passage has existed in, philosophy and then in general culture since then. So it's a very famous passage. So today if you hear these expressions to live the examined life or unexamined life. The reason I wanted to talk about it, I think it's very clear, it should go without saying, that for a human being to really be fully human is to live an examined life. And I think everything we said falls into that. But I intentionally avoided the examined life and I talked about something else. I talked about the intentional life because we've been talking about intentions. But in today's world, this is one of the ideas that should go without saying, that should be very clear and natural to everyone, but it's rejected. Generally speaking, in today's culture, they reject this idea for all sorts of reasons. 
They say someone can still live happily, they can be happy without living an examined life. You can just go on having the normal little pleasures of life and that makes you happy and you don't need to examine anything. They say, for instance, that um, Socrates, when he says this, he's being too elitist. How many people can actually live an examined life? The majority, the masses, no one examines their life. They just go on living their life. What really matters today is living in the moment. You only live once, so might as well enjoy. And of course, this is connected to mindfulness, which is another thing that we can talk about. Another very dangerous idea. And I've talked a little bit about this in the past. Why these ideas are dangerous? It's because they include some truth and a lot of non-truth. And then they become dangerous because they're accepted. For that part of truth that they contain, they are accepted by Muslims here and there, and they creep in. But they come with a whole lot of baggage around them. They can only make sense, they are only coherent as part of another system of belief, and as part of another ideology, most likely a materialist one, where there is no God where there cannot be an afterlife, where, where what matters is what's happening right now because nothing else would make sense. So what do we do? We're going to build the whole of our existence and understanding of the world based on the moment. We can't do anything else. Nothing else makes sense. Nothing is fair in the world. There's a lot of injustice. It would be too depressing. People would live in anxiety because there's no meaning behind anything. So what do we do? We're going to focus on the moment. Focus on what you have currently in this instant, in this specific instant, and that's all that matters. And so at the end, one way or another, there is a general rejection. And I don't want to, this is a whole lecture or more of this idea of the, is it worth it for a human being to live an examined life, an unexamined life or not? I think, generally speaking, throughout humanity, this should have been an idea accepted instinctively by most people. Today's world, I think, generally speaking, if you push, you'll see that this is an idea that's rejected. Okay, there's no general kind of push and encouragement and motivation to think, overthink how you live your lives. Okay, so that's uh, the second point. Mindfulness, I think we talked about it very quickly. I don't want to dwell on it. There's a link between this and the whole topic of the afterlife. In very short, it seems very clear that someone who has intentions, and that's all of us, someone who has intentions, they are building their afterlife with those intentions. If everything we've said so far is true, if everything we've said so far holds, every thought that you have is creating the world in which you will live in the afterlife. One way to understand it is to say what I come back as in the afterlife is just a pile, a bundle of intentions, of beliefs, of values, of intentions. That's how I, who I really am, and this is what will show up in the afterlife. Or another way to put it is every thought I have, every intention that I have, will become my afterlife. And the more I have some thoughts, the more they become what will be present in my afterlife. Okay, I'm not going to spend more time on this. This is another topic. But I think this is a crucial topic for someone who wants to change how they view the afterlife and our relationship to the afterlife.
If this is how you really think, I don't think that a lot of people who really believe this will be very, uh, you know, willy-nilly with how they think. They will control their thoughts. They will have discipline over their thoughts and their intentions and then their actions. Okay, this changes completely how we view our relationship with the afterlife. The last thing, and I will promise that I will end with this, I just need maybe two minutes maximum. All of this looked like it's a very daunting, difficult task to achieve high levels of sincerity. So I wanted to add one more layer, glimmer, reminder of hope, but it does require a bit of work. This is again something given to us from the narrations. Abu Hamza al-Tamali, in a relation, in a narration, he says, "Ra'aytu Ali ibn al-Hussein alayhi salam. I saw Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam. Waqad sata ridauhu an man kibh." So, Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam is standing there praying, and he is wearing the external garment, and that external garment fell off his shoulder while he's praying فلم يسوه حتى فرغ من صلاته فقلت في ذلك فقلت له في ذلك so i saw the garment fall and he did not put it back he did not take care of putting it back while he's praying he waited until he was fully done and so i asked him about that فقال عليه السلام ويحك اتدري بين يدي من كنت he told him woe to you abu hamza do you know before whom I was standing? You want me to fix my garment? The servant's prayer will not be accepted except for except for the part of the prayer in which he is, the part of the prayer which he is facing, the part of the prayer in which he is focused, that his intents and his focus and his thinking and his mind are fully focused and his attention is there. The part that you can focus on, that's the part that can be accepted and the rest is not accepted. That's not part of the prayer. فَقُلْتُ Abu Hamza thamali says, So I said, جُعِلْتُ فِدَاكْ إِذَنْ هَلَكْنَا May I be a ransom to you? Then we are all destroyed. We're all lost. We're all dead. If this is how it is. Abu Hamza thamali is talking. Okay, he's saying, when I compare my prayer to this, how much of my prayer can I say that is fully, I have my full attention and I'm fully mindful of what I'm doing? So Imam Sajjad alayhi salam said, فَقَالَ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ كَلَّا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُتِمُّ ذَلِكَ بِالنَّوَافِلِ He said, no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completes, repairs, fixes those shortcomings with the nawafil. All the additional acts the voluntary acts of good that you do, beyond the obligatory acts, this is what they serve to do. Okay? And we have a lot of narrations on this. There's another one, Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam, he says, إِنَّمَا جُعِلَتَ النَّافِلَةِ لِيُتِمَّ بِهَا مَا يَفْسُدُ مِنَ الْفَرِيضَةِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place nawafil, the voluntary, the bonus, the recommended acts, not the obligatory, the recommended acts of worship, so that he completes or complements the fara'id, the obligatory acts. And another narration, Imam Sadiq alayhi salam says, يُرْفَعُ لِلْرَجُلِ مِنَ الصَّلَاةِ رُبْعُهَا أَوْ ثُمْنُهَا أَوْ نُصْفُهَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Sadiq says, he removes, he takes away from the prayer, perhaps a quarter 
or a half or a an eighth of the prayer. أو أكثر بقدر ما سها or even more than that, depending on how much he was heedless during the prayer, unattentive. وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يُتِمُّ ذَلِكَ بِالنَّوَافِلِ But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completes those parts with the recommended acts. Okay, so inshallah, this is also something to keep in mind as we've been talking about these daunting tasks of trying to work on the our spiritual dimension, not always easy, but we have all of these mechanisms and instruments that we can use and we can seize and we can benefit from. We can't just forget all of those and just sit back and say this is difficult and I'm going to be depressed or I'm going to do, this is not for me, I'm not going to do anything. As we've said again and again, this is not an option. The only option we have is to move towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course it's not that easy. It's natural and the benefits are huge, but there's also a reward that is equal to the effort you put in. You put in more effort, you get more reward. And it shows in this world before the after. And we're starting to see some of that. And inshallah, this is something that we're going to try to keep alive in the in this series. It's constantly bring back the benefits in this world in addition to what we can benefit from in the afterlife. Inshallah, for the next topic. The next topic is now going to be the second condition. So I really apologize that this was very long, but we wanted to wrap it up today. Insha'Allah, we are done with the topic of good intentions and sincerity. The next topic is action. And so insha'Allah, now we are ready to start talking about knowledge and action. Starting with what does it mean for someone? Where do we start? We have to become learners. So what does Islam say about becoming learners? Who are learners and what does it mean? And we'll build from there. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin.